Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. The United States reported 5 million positive coronavirus diagnoses on Sunday. It now has a quarter of the world's total confirmed cases. China announced sanctions against 11 prominent Americans, including Senators Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, in what it says is retaliation for similar moves made by the United States last week. And Puerto Rico had to partially suspend its primaries when voters showed up and there weren't enough ballots. The island is planning to elect a new governor in November. President Trump is trying to use his executive power to go around Congress in an effort to help millions of Americans who are dealing with coronavirus-related financial stress. This weekend, he took executive actions to extend the suspension of student loan payments through the end of 2020 and to defer the collection of payroll taxes until after the election. He also wants to extend weekly unemployment benefits so that people can get an extra $400 a week through a state-slash-federal partnership. Now, over the weekend, there was a lot of debate over the effectiveness of the president's orders, even the legality of them. We are not going to focus on the legality. Instead, let's look at the reality facing many people in the U.S. who are returning to the workforce right now, which is underemployment. Yeah, some people are coming back to work with fewer hours and less pay. They aren't able to find full-time jobs that pay enough to survive. CNN reports, just as the country added 1.8 million jobs last month, the number of people working part-time also went up by more than 800,000. Yeah, take the case of Sarah Thomas. She lives in Gainesville, Florida, with her two children. She told CNN she was able to return to her job at a merchandising company. But her position went from being full-time to only 15 to 20 hours a week. And her hourly pay went down by $4 to $10 an hour. She says it's not enough to make rent. Underemployment was a problem for American workers even before the pandemic hit. Annie Laurie wrote about this in The Atlantic. And according to her reporting, five months ago, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics counted around 4 million workers who were underemployed. And last month, that number more than doubled to roughly 8 million. Some experts say the number of underemployed people may actually be much higher. Lowry says this group of underemployed workers needs help from Congress, too. She's suggesting something similar to weekly unemployment benefits, something like weekly underemployment benefits. She says these workers are too important to the overall health of the economy to be ignored or forgotten. This is the week we'll likely be finding out who Joe Biden is picking for his running mate. Mm -hmm. He's promising it'll be a woman. And on Friday, a group of high-profile women penned a letter urging the media to be cautious to ditch the stereotypes and tropes to which women in politics seem to have always been subjected. The women who signed this letter wrote that the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed it prompted newsrooms across the country to be thoughtful about the ways that their coverage can perpetuate systemic inequality. These women are calling on the media to take the same kind of care while covering Biden's VP pick. But of course, the same day that letter came out, the L.A. Times had this headline. It's the Bachelor campaign trail. Which of Biden's VP candidates deserves the rose? It was bad. Readers complained. 
The L.A. Times immediately apologized and they changed the headline. And in The New York Times, opinion columnist Maureen Dowd incorrectly wrote a woman had not been on the Democratic presidential ticket in 36 years. You can imagine Hillary Clinton's reaction. The 2016 presidential candidate tweeted asking whether she was just hallucinating four years ago. (laughs) But before Clinton, before Sarah Palin, there was Geraldine Ferraro, the actual first woman to run as vice president on a major party ticket. This was in 1984. She ran alongside Walter Mondale. Politico spoke with Geraldine Ferraro's daughter, Donna Zacro, to get her thoughts on what Biden's VP should expect. Zacro talks about some of the weird things about running in 1984. For example, her mother and Mondale couldn't raise their arms together like a lot of running mates do. They worried about the perception of a man and woman holding hands but also that her bra strap might show or her dress slip. Yeah, there was so much focus on how she looked, what she wore. Mm -hmm. And Ferrara's daughter cautions, despite how much time has passed and how many advancements women have made in politics, a woman VP today may face the same types of criticisms. But she also says her mother being on the ticket was a crucial first step. People in prisons are dying from the coronavirus, and we all need to be asking whether those deaths could have been prevented. Back in March, U.S. Attorney General William Barr directed the U.S. Bureau of Prisons to send home inmates who pose no serious threat to society. About 7,000 inmates, or about 4% of the federal prison population, were sent home. That policy was a response to the pandemic, but at least 25 people died in custody while their parole requests were pending. The Washington Post profiles John Daly, who was serving a 27-month sentence. He was a podiatrist who was convicted of Medicare fraud. His lawyer said he suffered from lymphoma. Daly applied for this so-called compassionate release, but was denied by the Bureau of Prisons. He appealed, tried again. He was denied again. Then in July, he contracted the coronavirus and he died. His lawyer says his death was completely avoidable, that a 27-month sentence turned into a death sentence. And like in many prisons around the country, the coronavirus is hitting Florida's prison system hard. The Orlando Sentinel has some exclusive reporting that looks at the Florida prison system, where at least 63 inmates have died from COVID-19. In at least 14 of those cases, the Sentinel found that inmates were eligible for parole. In total, there are nearly 4,000 people eligible for parole who are behind bars in Florida. Prison reform advocates say that many of them could be safely released into supervision instead of spending the pandemic in a prison complex. But Florida is one of the states with the most restrictive parole rules. And according to a Florida Department of Corrections spokeswoman, it is not changing release dates due to the coronavirus. And now for a little segment I like to call, Would You Walk 500 Miles? For some people, during the coronavirus pandemic, closed borders and canceled flights did not stop them from getting to their destinations. That's right. Take Jamie Wilkins, who didn't walk, but he cycled 440 miles across France to propose to his girlfriend. Or the father who took his sailboat and traveled by himself from the Caribbean to Ireland so that he wouldn't miss his daughter's wedding. I'd certainly do it. And and these are just some of the incredible stories of resourceful travelers profiled in the Wall Street Journal. My favorite 
the story of a couple, one American, one Canadian, who had been dating for years and continued to meet up at the border, each standing in their respective countries. Right, because the border is closed right now. They were just happy to be able to talk and see each other face to face, even if they couldn't embrace. And there's actually, by the way, a park that spans both countries. And don't you know, they wound up getting married in that park during the pandemic. So cute. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of this week's audio stories. We'll talk again tomorrow.